Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Chapter 6 of England and the Hundred Years' War by Charles William Chadwick Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Last Years of Edward III. 1369 to 1377, the loss of Aquitaine, domestic troubles, rise of the Wycliffeites. From the very first moment of the outbreak of war, the struggle with France proved disastrous for England. Almost before the designs of Charles V were realized, news came that the isolated county of Pontieu had been overrun by the enemy, and that Abbeville, and its other towns and castles had surrendered. The state of affairs in Aquitaine was not much better. In many parts of Poitou, Perigord, and Gouergue, powerful barons disavowed their allegiance and took up arms in behalf of the French king. In the war which followed, the English lacked the advantage which they had enjoyed in the earlier struggle of being guided by a single leader. King Edward never again took the field, though only in his 58th year. He was worn out as much in mind as in body. The direction of affairs ought to have passed to his eldest son, a man in the prime of life verging on his 40th year. But the black prince had never recovered from the effects of the fever which had stricken him down during his Spanish campaign. For the rest of his life he was a confirmed invalid, and every exertion which he made was immediately followed by a relapse which sent him back to his sickbed. For the first two years of the war he endeavored to stay at the helm, but the want of vigor and combination which attended the movements of the English troops showed that he was not himself. When he finally was obliged to retire from the scene of action in 1370, the main part of the responsibility fell to his next surviving brother, John of Gaunt, a busy and ambitious but not a capable prince. He had made many enemies and was never able to command the same unhesitating obedience which had been shown to Edward III and the Black Prince. As long as the younger Edward still kept his court at Bordeaux, the English continued to defend Aquitaine with moderate success. But Sir John Chandos, the prince's right-hand man, was killed in a petty skirmish in Poitou, on December 31st, 1369, and after his death things took a turn for the worse. In 1370 the French struck deep into the Duchy of Aquitaine and captured first the strong town of Aiguillon in Agenois, and then the important city of Limoges, whose citizens treacherously opened their gates to the invaders. The prince took the field for the last time to recover Limoges, though he was so weak that he could not sit his war-horse and had to be borne on a litter. He took the place after an obstinate defense 
by throwing down part of the wall by a mine filled with gunpowder. When his men entered the breach, he bade them cut down everyone they met, for he was much enraged with his rebellious subjects. Thus his hitherto spotless career was sullied by a massacre in its last moments, October 1370. Three months later his health grew so much worse that he took ship for England, expecting every moment to be his last. But he survived the passage and lingered on for more than five years at his castle of Berkhamsted, a helpless invalid, unable to take any part either in war or domestic governance. With the departure of the prince, things in France went from bad to worse. The French could not be kept back from overrunning Aquitaine, though two considerable expeditions had been sent out from Calais to endeavor to distract them from their prey. But by the orders of their king, the nobles of northern France utterly refused battle, shut themselves up in their castles, and allowed the English to march past them unmolested. These unchivalrous but effective tactics caused John of Gaunt in 1369 and Sir Robert Knowles in 1370 to march across Picardy without effecting anything of note, for they had no leisure to engage in sieges, and they could not get the battle that they desired. But in 1372 England made a serious effort to reinforce Aquitaine, the Parliament had granted the King a subsidy of £50,000, and with it a considerable army and fleet were collected, and placed under the orders of John, Earl of Pembroke, the King's son-in-law. He crossed the Bay of Biscay safely, but as he drew near La Rochelle, the port for which he was aiming, found his path beset by a large Spanish fleet. Henry of Trastamara was bent on revenging Navarrete, and he had just found another reason for taking strong measures against the English. John of Gaunt and his younger brother, Edmund of Langley, had in the winter of 1371 and 72 wedded the two daughters and heiresses of Pedro the Cruel, who had been dwelling as hostages at Bordeaux ever since their father broke his word in 1367. In virtue of this marriage, John gave himself out as the rightful king of Castile. Henry was much enraged and had sent forth to aid the French all the ships that he could gather together. A fierce fight ensued off La Rochelle in which the English were totally defeated, many of their light vessels being sunk by the great stones and masses of iron which the Biscayans cast down into them from their taller ships, June twenty-second, 1372. Pembroke and many scores of knights were taken prisoners. The defense of Aquitaine, now that the army of succor had been destroyed, fell upon the shoulders of the Captal de Bouche, the loyal Gascon baron who had so much distinguished himself at Poitiers sixteen years before. He made a gallant fight, but was utterly unable to stem the advancing flood of French invasion. His forces were too small, and the discontented people of the land would give him no help. Poitiers, Niort, and La Rochelle fell into the hands of the enemy, betrayed by their citizens, and with them went almost the whole of Poitou, Saint-Ange, and Agumois. At last the Captal was surprised and taken prisoner in a skirmish near Soubise, and with him departed the last hope of maintaining the English dominion north of the Garonne. 
About the same time, John V of Brittany, the one faithful ally of King Edward, saw the greater part of his duchy overrun by the French, whose forces were led by his own-born subject, the great condottiere Bertrand de Guisclin, who had now been made constable of France, 1372-1373. to in 1373, England made her last effort to turn the fortune of war. John of Gaunt was sent over the water with 3,000 men-at-arms and 6,000 bowmen. At Calais, he was joined by a great body of mercenaries raised in the Netherlands and Germany. We hear to our surprise that he had even enlisted 300 Scottish lances to serve against the French. Thus a formidable army was mustered, but it was led by an incompetent general and was directed on the wrong lines. It would have been better to start from Bordeaux and clear Perigord and Saintonge of the enemy instead of starting on a mere destructive raid into northern France. The experience of 1369 and 1370 had already shown that such operations had no effect against a king like Charles V, who did not intend to fight, and could not be stirred to indiscretion, even by seeing the barns and cottages of his subjects blazing up on every side. John of Gaunt was allowed to push his way across Picardy and Champagne as far as the Loire. The French hung about his route and cut off his stragglers, but would not offer battle. Then he moved on into Berry and went on ravaging the land on his way to Bordeaux. The autumn had now set in, and among the rugged mountains of Auvergne, the army suffered terrible privations. Nearly all the horses died of starvation, and many men fell by the way from cold and over-fatigue. At last they reached Bordeaux, ragged and famished, after having accomplished no useful end whatever. They had inflicted untold misery on the peasantry of central France, but had brought no pressure to bear on Charles V., nor even retaken one of the lost towns of northern Aquitaine. In April 1374, Lancaster disbanded the remnants of his hosts, since he could no longer pay them, and returned to England. The failure of his ill-managed expedition was followed by the loss of the greater part of Guienne and Gascony. The inhabitants felt that the King of England's last bolt was shot, and that there was no object in fighting any longer for a lost cause. One after another, all the towns along the Garonne and Dordogne gave themselves up to the French after feeble and perfunctory resistances. By the end of 1374, all that was left to King Edward were the cities of Bordeaux and Bayonne, and the narrow slip of Gascon coastland connecting them. All the inland was gone. That the two great seaports still held out was mainly due to the fact that their trading interests were closely bound up with the English connection, and that they knew that they were getting better and more orderly government from their actual lord than would be granted them by Charles V. It must be remembered, too, that they had been in the hands of the Plantagenets ever since Henry II had married Eleanor of Aquitaine two hundred years before, and had no historical or sentimental ties with the House of Valois. Considering the utter ruin of the English cause in Aquitaine, Edward III must be considered to have been fortunate when in the June of the following year, 1375, he succeeded in concluding a suspension of hostilities with the enemy. The truce was for a year, 
but it was renewed for a second twelfth month in June of 1376, and actually lasted for the whole of the short remainder of the old king's reign. The five years during which Aquitaine was gradually passing into the hands of the French were very important in the constitutional history of England. All through their course a bitter struggle was going on in Parliament, caused by the discontent of the nation at the unfortunate issue of the war. Its first sign was an outbreak against the king's ministers in 1371. It was easy to attribute the successes of the French to the incapacity of the men whom the king had chosen to carry on the administration. Of these, the most important were two prelates, William of Wickham, Bishop of Winchester, the Chancellor, and Thomas of Branningham, Bishop of Exeter, the Treasurer. Both were able and disinterested men. Wickham, who had first attracted Edward's attention by his skill as an architect, had been found an honest and capable statesman, and has left a good name behind him as the founder of Winchester College, the first great public school, and of the sister foundation of New College, Oxford. It was wholly unjust to lay the blame of the losses in Aquitaine on the chancellor and treasurer. They were really due to military causes. The want of a single competent general-in-chief and the squandering of men and money on the unwise raids into northern France. But the Parliament attributed them to the incapacity of the ecclesiastics to rule in time of war, and petitioned the king to dismiss them, and to replace them by laymen. Edward yielded, and Sir Robert Thorpe was made Chancellor, while Sir Richard Scroop, a follower of John of Gaunt, took over the charge of the Treasury. The new administration proved far more unfortunate than that which it had supplanted. John of Gaunt had now become the true ruling power in the realm. His elder brother was on his sickbed, and his father was falling into his dotage. Edward III had lost his wise and faithful wife, Philippa of Hainaut, in 1369, and shortly after fell into the hands of a worthless adventuress, Dame Alice Perrers. In his foolish fondness for her he allowed her to tamper with matters of state, and all who wished to advance themselves about the court came to her with bribes. She even contrived to interfere with the administration of justice and to frighten or corrupt the judges. John of Gaunt left his father in the hands of this harpy and assumed complete control of foreign affairs. It was on him that the responsibility for the disasters of 1373, 4, and 5 must be laid. After the loss of Guienne, he was forced to face Parliament with a lamentable report of money wasted, opportunities let slip, and provinces lost to the French. On the meeting of the good Parliament of 1376, the storm of national discontent, which had been brewing for the last three years, burst upon Lancaster's head. He was accused, justly enough, of incapacity, but men added unfounded accusations, such as the charge of plotting to seize the throne at his father's death, to the exclusion of his invalid brother, and of the little prince Richard the Black Prince's nine-year-old son. It was even whispered that he had planned to get the boy poisoned. John himself was too highly placed for the Parliament to dare to attack him openly, but a vigorous assault was made on his friends and associates. Peter de la Mer, the Speaker of the House of Commons, boldly declared that the nation was ready to help the king in his distress, but that they must first remove from about his person those who were making their private profit out of his misfortunes. 
the three chief offenders pointed out were the chamberlain william lord latimer richard lyons the king's financial agent and dame alice perrers the two first named had been guilty of disgraceful frauds they had bought up the king's debts from poor men who despaired of ever seeing their money at half their nominal amount or less and then paid themselves in full from the treasury on one occasion they had lent the king twenty thousand marks thirteen thousand three hundred and thirty three six shillings eight pence and got out of him an acknowledgment for twenty thousand pounds sterling latimer had extorted a great bribe from the duke of brittany england's faithful ally and had then betrayed him by selling his castles of saint sauveur and becherel to the french latimer and lyons were accordingly impeached that is formally accused by the commons and tried by the house of peers the lords found them guilty and they were sentenced to be fined imprisoned and deprived of their offices several minor offenders were punished at the same time as to dame alice the commons accused her of breaking the law which forbade women to meddle with the administration of justice and obtained against her an award of banishment she was made to swear that she would never return to the king's presence an oath which she very soon broke while these trials were in progress the prince of wales died june eighth thirteen seventy six parliament petitioned the king that his little grandson richard should be at once recognized as heir to the crown and that a standing council should be appointed to carry on the government edward himself was no longer capable of work and it was felt that john of gaunt must be prevented from engrossing all the royal powers into his hands accordingly the king consented that parliament should nominate nine persons as members of the council of whom at least four were to be always about his person at the same time he promised to consider favourably the demands contained in a vast list of one hundred and forty petitions dealing with all manner of administrative grievances which the commons laid before him two of the most important of these documents demanded the one that parliaments should be annual the other that the sheriffs and other royal officers should not interfere with the election of knights of the shire but always allow the return of the persons whom the better folk of the county should nominate on the sixth of july the parliament dispersed having as it fondly supposed crushed lancaster and provided for the future good governance of the realm the moment that they had broken up john of gaunt took his revenge and executed a kind of coup d'etat he got his doting father into his hands and then used his name to declare that the good parliament had been no parliament at all and that its acts were null and void he threw the late speaker peter de la mer into prison dismissed the nine newly appointed councillors and released lyons and the other culprits who had been condemned alice perrers was allowed quietly to return to court a new parliament was then summoned to meet and by employing the royal prerogative in the most unscrupulous fashion and threatening and overawing the electors lancaster succeeded in getting returned a large majority of his supporters january thirteen seventy seven the king had now entered into the fiftieth year of his reign and to celebrate his jubilee proclaimed a pardon and an amnesty to many minor offenders and debtors at the head of the list however appeared the names of latimer and lyons and their underlings who were relieved of all fines penalties and disabilities which had been laid upon them in the previous year 
All these actions were scandalous and highly calculated to lead to civil war. If the party which opposed the duke and the court had been headed by a baronial chief of the type of Simon de Montfort, or of the great earls who had withstood Edward I, it is probable that Lancaster would have been overthrown by force of arms. But this was far from being the case. The most prominent leader of the constitutional party was Bishop William of Wickham, a lover of peace and caution, and the chief lay patron of the cause, the young Earl of March, was also a man of moderate views. No open opposition to Duke John was made at first, even when he proceeded to bring against Wickham a ridiculous charge of embezzling public funds as a kind of counterblast to the impeachment of Latimer and Lyons in the preceding year. Lancaster, though a short-sighted politician, was yet conscious that he must soon be overthrown unless he could manage to enlist a certain amount of popular sympathy on his side. The truce with France being still running, he could not appeal to warlike sentiments, but there was one strong current of opinion which he thought that he might direct into channels favorable to himself. This was the anti-papal feeling, which was as strong now as in the days when the statutes of provisors and primunary had been passed. The court of Avignon was going from bad to worse, and its shameless demands and exactions deeply irritated every patriotic Englishman. But a great part of the clergy now as always thought themselves bound to side with the papacy, and the English church was itself full of abuses and scandals which did not tend to grow less. Bishops who neglected their dioceses and were more at home in war and diplomacy than in spiritual work had always existed, but in the fourteenth century their numbers were greater than ever, since the baronage had taken of late to putting their younger sons into the church and pressing them forward for promotion. In earlier centuries this had been rare. In the fourteenth it was very common. Three of the seven archbishops of Canterbury, between 1348 and 1400, were sons or brothers of peers. The average of episcopal piety and unworldliness was not improved by the change. Among the beneficed clergy, there was a great deal of non-residence, an appreciable amount of simony, and a certain proportion of evil living. The abbeys and friaries were worse. All accounts agree that the monastic bodies were inferior to the secular priests in zeal and moral worth. It is said that the hasty filling up of the depleted ranks of the clergy with unqualified and unsatisfactory persons after the Black Death had a permanent effect in lowering the moral tone of the whole body. At the same time, the church was richer than ever. It was believed that a third of the land and wealth of the realm were in clerical hands. The clergy always gave liberal grants and convocation for national purposes, but this did not satisfy men who complained that their land escaped all feudal taxation and so did not pay their fair share towards filling the treasury. The feeling that something ought to be done to improve the internal condition of the church as well as to check the encroachments of the Pope, had long been prevalent and was shared by many who were themselves clerics. Among those who were foremost in calling for radical measures of reform was John Wycliffe, sometime master of Balliol College, a learned Oxford doctor of divinity. He at first made his mark as a deep thinker in philosophy and theology, but was driven into politics by his indignation at the corrupt state of the church and the papacy. 
he came to the conclusion that most of the clerical scandals of the day had their roots in the overgreat wealth and power of the church, and held that the best way to reform it would be to compel the clergy to return to the apostolic poverty of the early centuries. Against the papacy, as the source of all other evils, he was particularly keen. He had been first introduced to public affairs as a member of a deputation sent to Bruges in 1374 to negotiate terms of agreement between the English Church and the Pope. The evil impression which the papal delegates then made on him he never forgot. Ere long we find him protesting in the strongest terms against the spiritual authority which the Pope claimed to exercise over the whole Church, and asserting that it was blasphemous for him to pose as God's vice-regent on earth and the mediator between Christ and the individual Christian. All men, he said, employing a familiar metaphor drawn from the feudal system, are tenants-in-chief under God, responsible directly to him for their souls and their manner of life. The Pope is like an intruder who tries to push in as a mean tenant between God and man. Then he added that spiritual authority could only be wielded by a righteous man, and that no obedience was due to the orders of a spiritual ruler whose life was not in consonance with the word of Christ. Not only the Pope, but a large number of the English prelates might fairly be said to come under this condemnation. At a later date, Wycliffe added to his attack on the governors of the Church, an attack on some of the characteristic doctrines of Rome, notably on that of transubstantiation in the Eucharist. This later development, however, had not begun in 1377, and it was only as preaching insubordination and resistance to Rome that Wycliffe was at this time arraigned and tried by Bishop Courtney of London, a strong opponent of John of Gaunt. The Duke's only sympathy with Wycliffe came from the fact that they both desired to repress the overgrown power of the ecclesiastical authorities, the one from political and personal motives, the other on religious and theoretical grounds. With Wycliffe's spiritual fervor, Lancaster had nothing in common, but he resolved to support him because they owned the same enemies and because there was always popularity to be gained by opposing Rome. Accordingly, when Wycliffe was brought before the bishop in St. Paul's for trial, February 1377, the duke came in person and threatened Courtney in such stormy language that after an unseemly altercation the assembly broke up in disorder and Wycliffe went free. A mob of the bishop's friends and followers went next day and sacked John's palace of the Savoy. Though much enraged, he dared not proceed to more violent measures against Courtney, and contented himself with making his father suspend for a time some of the privileges of the city of London. Thus the political strife of the court party and the constitutional party had become complicated with the religious dispute between the reformers and the Romanizers. How much further matters would have gone had John of Gaunt retained his unlimited power and authority we cannot say, for the aspect of affairs was wholly changed a few months later by the death of the old king. Edward died on June 2, 1377, at his palace of Sheen. When his last moments were near, his servants stole all they could and fled. The shameless Alice Perrers is said to have stripped the very rings from his hands when she saw him fall into unconsciousness. Of all the numerous train that he had fed, 
only one poor priest was present to minister the offices of the church as he drew his last breath. This miserable deathbed was but the natural termination of a life spent in the pursuit of selfish pleasure and ambition. Such a king was bound to breed a race of heartless courtiers and thankless dependents. End of chapter 6「Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember we also have a website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening and have a great day. »